talking about the good, official, hardworking, well-intentioned kind of journalists. The difference between those folks and the people who are doing brand communications is the difference between telling objective stories and telling stories with an objective. Stand by. I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 376. Today is Sunday the 7th of June 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. First, a shout out and thanks to Playful Author for putting up a five-star review on the show. This week's interview is with Melanie Diesel. Melanie's the founder and chief content officer of StoryFuel. She's the author of the Content Fuel Framework, How to Generate Unlimited Story Ideas. She's also an international keynote speaker of great renown, recognized as one of the world's leading experts in native advertising and branded content. In this chat with Melanie, we discuss what it means to think like a journalist when you're a marketer, the relationship between storytelling and content, looking at some of the key and insightful elements of her new book, how to come up with 100 pieces of content for your brand using focus and format, and the notion of content bankruptcy. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com as usual. And as ratings and reviews are the lifeblood of any podcast, please consider going to this handy all-in-one ratethispodcast.com forward slash M-D-I-A-L to drop in your review. And certainly don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the interview. Melanie Diesel, great to have you on the show. You are a fellow write and ranter, author of a book that I plunged into and devoured called The Content Fuel. What, in your words, how would you like to describe yourself? It's a good question. You know, I have historically described myself as a speaker uh, and we're in an interesting time, you know, in the midst of recording this where events are not happening. So I've actually, you know, reckoning with this myself at the moment, um, but I'm a, I'm a lifelong storyteller and I really feel like my mission and all the things that I do is to try to bring that love of telling stories to others, primarily marketers, which is why I've done a lot of speaking at conferences. Um, but I'm also a, an educator. I've done adjunct, you know, worked as an adjunct professor. I have, you know, ta- taught workshops in a corporate environment. And now this book hopefully allows me to teach as many people as as I can reach. One of the fun things I had in sort of uh, layering into who is Melanie Diesel was uh, unpeeling the the notion of your journalistic background and and how that obviously flavors what you're doing today. And then you did this master's in digital education, which is uh, also fascinating because it's something I, I, got, I got luckily into. I used to work at a, a company called L'Oreal and I ran a brand for them called Redken. And Redken, which is a hairdresser brand, they, they do a lot of education and, and actually got this chance within a corporate environment to do storytelling through digital and through education. Because at the end of the day, I've always thought that education, which is obviously one of the, the other formats you talk about, is a way to tell stories. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I studied, my master's was in arts and cultural criticism. I studied writing. Um, But really, I feel like so much of the mission of journalism, of of creating content, is in educating. You know, we're acting on behalf of our audience to interview, to collect information, to dig deeper, and then turn that around and give it to others as a way to help them feel as informed or as entertained as, as we had the privilege to be. 
And, you know, like I said, I, I became obsessed with storytelling, with, with journalism, with investigating. I mean, that was my love for so long when I was studying it. And so to find a way to help share that with others has been very rewarding for me. My, my favorite part of my job in, in any respect, whether it's on stage, in a workshop, you know, one-on-one -on -one environment, is if I can get someone to come, who comes into that room or into that conversation thinking, well, I'm not a creative, I'm not a storyteller, that's not me. And they walk out saying, oh, I've got so many ideas, I can't wait to dig into that. That for me is the most rewarding thing. It means I, I got someone else to catch that bug and they're gonna start asking big questions and digging into things and you know unearthing stories that haven't been told before or haven't been told in that way before. And so for me, that's like the, the most rewarding part. I guess I'm, I'm sort of like a, a missionary preaching the word of journalism. And so when I get people on, on my side, it, it feels really good. It makes me think of, of this notion of immense investigation and you talked about sort of uncovering the storytelling bug. I also think about the uncovering of the investigative bug. And I don't know if there's a real link exactly, because afterwards, you you know, what you're doing with the investigation is then you have to relate that back. But it, it feels for me that sometimes, you know, in when you when you're really investigative, you kind of have to almost go undercover, you have to go beyond the first layers to, to peel back the stories. You know, when a cop is interviewing somebody, they're not necessarily gonna tell you the story that favors them, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the person who's being interviewed or right. investigated. And, and so as a journalist, you're also in that kind of a thing. And I, I'm just wondering, is there a bug within that as well? Or can there be things that sort of turn you off and say, oh, oh danger? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's different for everybody. I think we all catch whatever part of the bug, you know, is, is right for us. There are some who are, you know, wonderful satire writers and that's their whole livelihood and they're amazing at conveying messages in that way. I think for those of us who catch the investigative bug, there's there's a little bit of an obsessive quality, you know, those are the the people who are, I mean, unfortunately, and we see this throughout culture, you know, these are the folks who are often subject to addictions of various kinds and it's because mm -hmm we can get very single-minded about something. And so, you know, just an example, you know, you see that there's there's some sort of injustice happening. Something doesn't, doesn't feel right to you. It seems like this shouldn't be this way. You almost cannot stop. It's, it's compulsive until I figure out why, until I find the answer. And as happens so many times, the deeper you dig, the more questions you find. Well, well, why was the funding allocated in this way? Well, well who's in charge of the funding? Well, how did they get that role? You know, and it's sort of, you you end up with, what you see it in, in films all the time or in, in television shows, someone's in a darkened room with strings running all across, you know, pictures hung here and charts over here. And it, it can feel very much that way when you're, when you're in the midst of it. That's a, I think it's, it's sort of almost like solving puzzles and, and yeah. there's always incomplete information. What, what you write about, what you tell on your, um, your site, you talk about think like journalists. And I, I was just wondering, can you unpack that for me? If I'm a brand, what, is yeah. it, what does it actually mean to think like a journalist? So I always say that the, the difference between communication that good journalists, and I'll give that caveat, right? We're talking about the good, official, you know, hardworking, well-intentioned kind of journalists. Uh, you know, the difference between those folks and the people who are doing brand communications is the difference between telling objective stories and telling stories with an objective. Right. So if you're a brand, that story has a meaning behind. There's an intention. I want you to, to believe this thing or, or buy this product or come to our event. 
Whereas in journalism, generally speaking, and, and there are, of course, you know, exceptions to the rule, but you're not trying to convince your audience to do anything. You're trying to give them enough information to come to a conclusion on their own. I'm not telling you who to vote for. That would be an opinion piece. I'm just telling you, here's what we've learned about this particular candidate, right? So I think there are some elements of both that are helpful. And, and obviously, if you're working on the brand side, the marketing side, you do need to have an objective. You have to have business goals and be creating content for a purpose. But there's often value at the level of an individual content piece to back away from that product and, and think about it a bit more objectively because it can be so much more compelling. So there's a number of ways you can do that. One of the things I talk about very often is including reputable sources. You know, any journalist worth their salt knows you don't tell the audience what you think or feel. You find people who are qualified and informed to tell the audience what they think and feel, right? It's not about my feelings. It's about the scientists or the experts or the people inside this particular organization. And so oftentimes we forget to do that very same thing on the brand side where we're quoting just our executives all the time. We're never looking to outside sources or we're making big sweeping claims about trends or product efficiency or an industry as a whole without asking a scientist, a sociologist, you know, a, a professor of some kind to come in and validate those big claims. And when we do that, we create so much more trust with our audience, right? So, you know, finding reputable sources is, is one of the easiest ways you can take that content and make it a bit more objective, a bit more trustworthy right off the bat. I love the way you, you unveil that, Melanie, because the narrative in my mind, just to this point of, of, of thinking like a journalist, because the issue, and we were talking about this just beforehand, which is there was a wall. Uh, there, there used to be a very fixed wall between editor and publisher side. And, and one was just to do the stories, and the other one was to sell the stories, if you will, make money. Yeah. And it turned out that that became a very hard wall to keep up because, well, right. media papers are going out of business. And the other side, well, the brand, they necessarily might have objectives that look like selling. <laughs> and the more that selling smells like selling, the less powerful and influential it is. So right. just, when, just like when a journalist becomes more of a, let's say, a I don't know the kind word, but a, a, a sucker for the sale, if you will, to use a, the nicest <laughs> yeah. way to come up with it. Um, that, that then doesn't look like as much a, a have integrity when you're a journalist. Right. And it, it kind of feels like that also is a, a, a learning for both sides because at the end of the day, a newspaper that's dead, i.e. not selling, no good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a time in the journalism world where, like you said, with that wall, you could be separated from how your organization was run and how it made money. You, you turned in your copy and you were on to the next story. And I think the digitization of media has made it so that that process doesn't end when you hand in your story. Now it's your job to also help make sure the story looks good. It's your job to help coordinate with a photographer or a designer. It's your job to share it out on social media and make sure people actually read it. And so we no longer have that liberty in the journalism world of, of being separate from the business of journalism as well. And, you know, you do need necessary separation to maintain integrity, but we can't be blind to it. We can't turn a blind eye to it anymore. And I think the inverse is also true. There was a time when businesses could just, you know, create their, their ad and send it out to the agency. And that was the end of the day. Right. Um, but now the, 
the digitization means we have a more personal one-on-one -on -one connection with our audience through social media, through our blogs, through all the content we create as brands. And so we no longer have the liberty of just thinking about the sale. We also need to create something worthy of subscribing to, following, engaging with, watching, reading, etc. And so to do that, we need to occasionally at least back away from our product and have a broader conversation because people aren't going to sign up for the most part to just receive sale messaging. We don't want to be pitched, you know, every day, every minute, every email or, or post we see. And so we need to, we need to find a way to, to help that medicine go down a little easier with sprinkle some sugar in there. And the thing that I think kind of maybe must've been a motor beside both of those movements is social media, because on the one hand, the the paper was being sold in a kiosk and the journalist wrote it and had a byline and then there's this thing called comments that the internet allowed and well i'm not going to read that by gum that's you know that's them reading it and then you ended up having to have a twitter profile and then people might comment to you well you yeah. wrote this and well i'm not going to respond to that but if you do respond to it in an interesting way that might help you get more clicks back in oh godfathers yeah. And then on the brand side, you, you know, you were spewing out stuff and, and, and yet the social element, the human story side is what you're going to spread to your network. And all of a sudden I have to soften. I, I just feel like in both sides, it had different kind of roles. Well, it shifted in both cases from broadcast to a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. it, there was a world where we could just put information out and what people did with it, they did with it. And now they're telling us what they're doing with it or what they do and don't like about it or what they want to see more of and less of. And so that has, it's raised the stakes a little bit. We've got to work a little bit harder to be worthy of their attention. Uh, and it's also, you know, that's, it also plugs into the broader conversation of the glut of content that exists now, how easy it is to create, you know, the competition is much, much fiercer now to get someone's attention and, and to be worthy of reading. And so you know, they're, we're not just competing with other journalists, we're competing with brands too. And, and brands are competing with journalists, we're competing with Facebook, we're competing with Google, you know, it, it's and all bloggers. of us are, exactly, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Candy Crush on your phone, it's like, we're all competing for the same 24 hours a day. And so the, the bar is now higher to be worthy of someone's time and attention. All right, so this brings up this notion of creating content so there's we've just determined that there is a lot of content out there what made you want to come up with the content fuel the content fuel book yeah so the the content fuel framework was born out of requests that i was getting from clients from people that i was working with um it's one of those situations where you're not even really sure how you do something but but you mm. need to figure it out and so in a way i guess i became obsessive about investigating how my brain was working <laughs> i would be in these environments with clients and they'd say okay we're we need to come up with ideas for such and such product or event and i my brain would light up i'd say yeah we could do a video about this we'll go behind the scenes and do this we'll we'll do a long form piece on this we'll look at the data you know and i could i could you know, roll out ideas like it was, it was incredibly easy and I couldn't explain how or why. And if I didn't know how or why I was doing it, I couldn't tell someone else how to do it. And so the book was really born out of a lot of reflection and, and introspection and trying to figure out what is happening in my head when these ideas are seemingly popping out of thin air 
and how do I turn that into something I can teach others how to do? And so that's, that's really what the book is, is me saying after a lot of reflection, here's what I've come up with. My brain asks, how do I answer this question? And here's some ways you might. And how does it answer this question? And here are some ways you might. And so if you combine those things, you come up with, you know, the, the promise of the book is, is hundreds of ideas using this framework uh, anytime you need it. And so it really was just very, very driven by trying to figure out where do my ideas come from? Mm. Because I can't explain it and that's not acceptable to me. Right. So once I figured it out, I just had to put it on paper. Well, I love that you explained it that way, Melanie, because I absolutely wanted to figure out how on earth you came up with them. Because it's just, it doesn't feel like there's a, well, this is how it is kind of place. You actually have to craft these ideas. And the, the terms you use were really, for me, kind of intuitively different and 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 so i just love the the ideas you know people history process curation example opinion in terms of focuses and then in the formats and i'm just reading them as i as i to remember them but you along with writing audio and video you know duh you include image gallery timeline quiz tool and map and i was thinking if i had to do that i would be petrified because I don't know how I would base my decision. I mean, you know, you clearly have a strong connection with, you know, how your the wires in your brain are working to be able to come up with that. Because it just felt like, whoa, uh, how, where do you stop? And then, you know, with the new yeah. technologies as well coming in there, it just seems yeah. like so many. Well, that, that was the big challenge. I mean, I think in a way I was tasking myself with codifying the way we talk about content and that's, that's a big challenge. So I wanted to try to be as humble and honest as I could in doing that, you know, in that exercise. And so I even say in the book, look, these may not be the right categories for you. Maybe your specific business, your specific resources demand that you don't use some of these or that you use others and that's fine. Um, but this is what works for me. And since I figured this out, I've been teaching it in workshops. I've been sharing it on stage and it's worked for a lot of other people too. So it's not just my own system. It's, it's actually sure. proven to be helpful. Um, but yeah, there, there was a, a, quite a few moments of, you know, renaming some of the categories because the way I think it, you know, people at one point was called profile. And I realized that's a very journalistic term and it's much more clear if I just say people focus stories instead of profile. So, you know, there was a lot of that sort of back and forth figuring out how do we make this accessible for, especially for someone who maybe doesn't come from a content background of any kind. So the, it, a lot of naming. And then again, like you said, where do I stop? And so I think that was easiest with the formats. Um, what I decided is that I wanted the formats to be platform agnostic. So, you know, there's easy, easily a world where it could have said tweet and Facebook post right. and Pinterest post, but that's not necessarily helpful, I don't think. You don't wanna think in a platform specific way because most of us are not platform specific, right? We have a presence across all these different places. And so I tried to break, the, break it down to its most basic parts, you know, like writing, imagery, audio, video, trying to really get down to the ingredients which could then be, you know, put in different places. And that's where we landed on, after the formats, there's a chapter on how to evaluate new formats that arise because uh, I can't account. Yeah. I, I mean, we can talk about VR and, and augmented reality and, and gaming, right? Brands are creating games now. Um, but 
I didn't want to leave people hanging, you know, to say, if it's not one of these, I can't help you. So I use sort of, these are the questions that I use when I'm evaluating whether a new format is useful for us as an organization or as an entity, what questions should you ask? What things should you examine before you just dive into the shiny new object? And when you say we, I'm guessing you mean Trina White and the gang at page two. Was that, is that possible? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Trina White and the team at, at page two were the ones who helped bring the book to life and, and take it from, you know, a Google Doc into a real book, uh, which is, you know, incredibly grateful for that. Um, but, you know, truthfully, a lot of this book was, was fully baked when I kind of came to, to Trina and the team. I had a, a magnificent editor who I worked with to finalize some of the language and fine tune things, obviously. Um, but I've been teaching the content fuel framework in workshops and, and sharing it on mm. stage for, uh, you know, the better part of the last couple of years. And so it's been refined over time mm. through sharing it and teaching it with others, hearing their feedback. So it's more it like really a collective was. we in some yeah. regard. When yep. the, the book, uh, so for having worked with them myself on, on one book and considering the different formats that a book can take, yeah. you've got a, a almost a matricial a series of elements to your book. In other words, so you have the different formats and then you have clickable links that go to the site that have more links that can go to more curated options. So I almost felt like it was labyrinthine or at least endlessly possible. You, you just go from one to one to one. And so that yeah. must have been a, a hard thing to map out, speaking of mapping. <laughs> it was a lot of spreadsheets, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, so one of the one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to make sure that if I was hopefully inspiring people to want to start creating in a new format, I didn't want to just say, okay, good luck, you know, go, go forth and create. I wanted to try to provide as many resources and helpful things as I could. So yeah, every focus or format chapter where I'm teaching you a new way to tell a story does include a landing page on my website. The links are all in the book. Uh, and those landing pages include, as you said, you know, there's curated Pinterest boards with examples. There's which, by uh, the way, I, 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 there's one of them. I absolutely just oh, another rabbit hole, a Pinterest board about the world of podcasting, and I'm like, oh god, I have to read all of these. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Well, and then there's also I created. Um, Amazon like idea lists so that if you were looking for equipment or you know instructional books or other tools that you may need you can go there software I created you know uh, YouTube playlists of tutorial based information you know to help you learn how to edit your podcast or learn how to shoot video so I really tried to to curate and connect as many dots as I could and you know in full transparency that's still happening right now I'm working on a new massive spreadsheet of tool suggestions. I didn't want to put those tools in the book because as we all know, you know, softwares and tools kind of come in and out of vogue and they're decommissioned and updated. So uh, we're working on creating a, a sort of repository online. So it'll say, if you're looking to get into podcasting, here are some of the platforms you might need to check out, the softwares you should try. And same thing for video, for infographics, et cetera. So, you know, I, I envision it as a, a living experience. You know, the book may be printed and, and as it is, but we're always going to be looking for new ways to, to add more learning into that entire environment. Well, and I was just thinking of a small sub benefit of, of working with page two is that they have a faster turnaround than traditional publishing houses. So the time decay of all those links and all those things you do put in there, I mean, obviously you have sort of more like evergreen type of links in the yeah. book, but you know, I was just thinking, I, I just, 
imagining myself in your position, Melanie, putting all that together. One of my favorite, of course, um, formats you talk about is audio. And, uh, you know, I've got this event that I'm putting on. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in the idea of audio. But I, f I see a lot of resistance in brands to get into podcasting per se. And it made me think of what are the resistances that exist within brands to really go to storytelling as opposed to flogging my next, you know, widget or 250 yeah. ml shampoo. They, they, it seems, I don't know if there's a relationship between the resistance of doing branded podcasts or brand infused podcasts and uh, doing storytelling in general. Do you, do you see any links or what does that tell you? I think one of the challenges that at least the brands that I've worked with, one of their, their hangups when it comes to audio is I think compared to many of the other formats, it's not as trackable and it's not as easily fit into their existing spreadsheets, right? It's measured and evaluated in a very different way. And so, you know, video is relatable because they're making commercials. Uh, blogs are relatable because they're writing copy for their website. But when it comes to creating audio content, this is often an entirely new format, which means they're not sure how to evaluate it. They're not sure how to know whether it's working or not. They may not have the talent in-house to even create it, know where to start. And so I think it, it often feels like a departure. And the fact that, as, as I'm sure you've experienced, you don't get as much of the data from the necessary partners that you have to have in rolling out a podcast across iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, et cetera. You don't always get the same level of data as you do for you know, a typical ad environment where they know everything, you know, where people spent their time on the page, how much time. It, it's a little bit more difficult for them, I think, to feel comfortable making that investment when it's it's unclear how they'll know whether it's it's paying off for them so that that's one of the key concerns that i see with mm. audio um, and i think the other thing is there's also uh, creating audio content is a challenge because you don't have the comfort of resting on your laurels it's not like writing a blog post where you could put some nice design behind it you could put some fancy photos on the page and distract from the fact that maybe it's not the best uh, quality writing. I mean, with audio, it, you, it sort of stands alone. You really have to have high quality sound. You have to have compelling interviewers. You have to have compelling topics. And you can't, you can't hide behind sizzle. You know, you really need to create something worth listening to. And that makes it a little bit more intimidating, I think, from a storytelling perspective. I love that. Thank you for those insights, Melanie. Um, the other forms, formats you talk about are video and live video as two separate instances. And, and of course they are, because I also think that live video suffers from that same element because, well, you're using other elements like visual, but it's me. And it's, you know, yeah. warts and all. And if I uh, say uh, a few too, uh, too many times <laughs> or whatever my issue is in a visual component, it's, it's kind of more authentic, I feel, live video. Yeah. While you can always do post-production in, in audio, in the podcasts, the live mm -hmm. video is more authentic. Do you, do you have like a hierarchy in Melanie's mind to these formats and uh, topics? I would say it's it's tough to 
to create a single hierarchy because I think it's it's different for everyone. I like to say that everyone has their own first content language. So, you know, for you, maybe that, it, I know you love audio. Audio is where you feel most comfortable. You create most prolifically. I have you know, a you, you feel, you know, you know that. <laughs> but, you know, everyone has their own comfort level. Some people really love speaking. Others would be very intimidated by the idea of having to do an interview like this, you know? Others, you know, are very comfortable writing, but would never want to appear on video. And, and others would say, look, I'll be on video all day, but please don't make me write the show notes myself, you know? So it, it just depends on your own strengths, I think, where you want to start and where your comfort level is. So I don't think there's a single hierarchy. What I would say is, you know, I th think writing is the most transferable format that if you can create good written content, that can become many other things. And I also say that, that video or live video, whatever you're comfortable with, is a super format and that creating video content allows you to break it down into audio visuals and written content using your transcript. So I think that's one of the, the situations where if you, if you have limited resources and can only create one thing, I'd recommend that one thing be video because from that single video, you can create audio, you can create uh, written content that lives on your site. So that those are the sort of the two rules that I see most often. Yeah, this notion of repurposing, right? Yeah. Fantastic. One last thing, which is you, you mentioned, it's, it's a footnote um, in your book, which is this thing of content bankruptcy. <laughs> what a fantastic word. And so you, you, you talk about this notion of cleaning out everything, getting rid of all your email subscriptions and all this. And, and I couldn't help but thinking about things like all the tabs on my browser. And you talk yeah. about getting rid of your stack of books on the bookshelf, but bloody hell, you have the ones downloaded in your kindle you've got your audible books and it's just over the top so you clean out now the question melanie is what uh, what secret do you have for getting the right sources where how do you curate get back in and create the right ones for next year yeah i think for myself just and this is part of what that footnote was about i was admitting that you know my eyes are sometimes bigger than my stomach when it comes to content you know i have books that I don't have, more books than I could probably read. I've got more music than I could listen to, you know, and, and that's wonderful. Like how blessed we are to be able to do that, right? I rec fully recognize that. But I think sometimes it becomes a burden for me. I start to feel stressed by, oh gosh, I haven't caught up on these books. I have so many things to do and it feels overwhelming to me. So the, the content bankruptcy is, and it happens not all at once, but in small parts, um, when my email starts to feel overwhelming, I'll go and do a big unsubscribe. You know, when my bookshelf starts to overflow, I'll, I'll bring a box for donation or give some to friends. So I think it's important to recognize whatever level, when your content ceases to be informative and starts to be stressful, there's a point where you probably need to do some cleaning out, you know, some spring cleaning of your, your content inboxes, wherever those are. Um, for me, a big part of it comes down to acknowledging what was I actually engaging with of the stuff that I had. And so, you know, I, I get a lot of books, like I said, some are, many are sent to me by folks who, you know, want me to, to read it or review it or whatever else. Um, acknowledging that certain books that I get, even if I aspirationally would like to be the kind of person who reads that book, it doesn't interest me. It doesn't hold my attention or it will never make it to the top of my list because other things that, are more compelling will always supersede it. So in that instance, it's saying, well, what are the topics that always move right to the top? You know, I just be, be very open. I have bought biographies of, or autobiographies of the most incredible, amazing, inspiring people. 
and I always will read social science, psychology, or business first. So it's not that I, I don't love these individuals and want to learn more about their lives, but it always feels more, more pressing to get into those other topics. And so telling myself, maybe I love that biography. Maybe I wait. Maybe that's not something I need to buy now because it'll get added to the bottom of the list instead of the top. So I think really kind of critically examining your own content consumption habits to see what are the things that are worth your time? What are the things that do bring you joy, that do inspire you? You know, and I think the other thing I always encourage people to do is make sure you have a diversity of inputs as best you can. It's very easy without even recognizing it to find yourself consuming the same types of things created by the same types of people. And when you do that, you create knowledge gaps in your world that you don't even realize are there. And that can be a huge liability. So, you know, make sure that you're not reading only books in the same exact tiny genre or written by people with the same background or written by the same types of people. You know, you want to get a diversity of perspectives to make sure that you're not missing out on things that could be even more inspiring for you. Mm. Melanie, words well expressed. I feel like I've learned tons listening to you. It, you, you. You very much, I think, exhibit that journalistic type of mind where you're very clear about what you're saying. And that is also really useful. In, and the other thing about the written word that's useful, of course, is that it's good for Google because it knows how to pick up words that are written, even if they're in, you know, underneath a video and so on. So, right. Melanie, how can someone learn more about you, connect, get your book, of course, books, yeah. really see you with the, with the workbook and all that, and the ongoing, right, yeah. the ongoing journey. <laughs> the whole experience. So, um, my organization is called StoryFuel, storyfuel.co is our website, so storyfuel.co. If you go there, there's a tab for the book. If you want to go straight there, it's contentfuelframework.com. That'll bring you right over to the book. And you can find out more information on our website, on storyfield.co, about how to contact me if you're interested in that, about our masterminds, our coaching, our consulting, you know, when the world uh, restarts again, how to, how to bring me into a conference if that's of interest. But uh, you can find all that at storyfield.co. Beautiful. Melanie, thank you a million. That was wonderful fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on mintodial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
emotions in me a convinced man in the arms of a woman despise revenges and struggle to see live for the challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why Love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. out.